Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's January 17th, 1997. And another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by... Aria, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. Since 1533, when Henry VIII divorced Catherine of Aragon, divorce has become ever more accessible in the UK. Uh, The 1857 Matrimonial Causes Act, making divorce possible for most of the general public. The Divorce Reform Act of 1969, making divorce possible without either party being legally guilty. However... Over in the Republic of Ireland, it remarkably took until today in history in 1997 for a divorce to be legally granted. Yeah, prior to Irish independence, Ireland had obviously been governed by Britain's marriage laws, under which divorce was possible but hard to obtain. It required an act of parliament. Your marriage could literally end up being debated in parliament. But in 1857, as you mentioned, the matrimonial causes that made divorces a matter for the courts. But Ireland was excluded from the act. And that meant that the parliamentary route was the only way for an Irish person to obtain a divorce. And yes, of course, it was way out of reach of the ordinary person, but at least technically possible. When Ireland became independent, its constitution it was very heavily influenced by the church article 43 of the irish constitution of 1937 specifically forbade divorce it literally says no law shall be enacted providing for the grant of a dissolution of marriage and so to bring us to this day what was required to change the constitution was a referendum and one had been held 14 months earlier where Uh, Irish voters had by the narrowest of margins approved a constitutional change and it actually wasn't meant to take effect for a little while yet. And this was an exceptional case overseen by Justice Henry Barron who unexpectedly issued this decree before the official effective date of February 27 for uh, these new laws to come into place, basically granting the opportunity for a terminally ill husband who wasn't expected to live to see the law change to actually get married to the woman he wanted to marry. Yeah, so actually this wasn't really, in that sense, a decision about divorce at all. It was a decision about remarrying. The judge was allowing this man to divorce so that he could marry his partner, and his original wife actually didn't want to divorce, but didn't contest the application because he was dying. So it really was a kind of fairly unique situation. But that... Uh, kind of crucial distinction between it being about remarriage rather than divorce actually underpins the whole debate in Ireland for Mm. about 20 years until this date. Because, as you said, there was this referendum in 1995, should we allow a divorce or should we not? The no campaign very much made it about divorce. No, Mm. we shouldn't allow divorce. The yes campaign was basically saying all along, this isn't about divorce, this is about remarriage. This is about saying to people, don't be trapped in the marriages you're in. They've already found other people. They've already separated. Let them marry the people they love. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a shame, really, that this was the first divorce because you want it to be you know, a liberation for both parties. You know, you can see in the movie, it's like the woman strolling out of court and sort of tossing a handful of papers up into the air. But in this they case, become confetti like... for their wedding. Yes, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, the fact that the parties weren't identified, you know, the coverage from the Times suggests that both of the former spouses were really unhappy that this, what they saw as a delicate private matter, had been thrust into the spotlight as a first. You know, they certainly weren't the crusading for divorce people who had been in the news. It had been an incredibly publicly contested referendum, as you can imagine. And the debate got pretty heated too. You know, when the votes of the referendum were being announced, when the Dublin count was announced as a victory for the yes side, the anti-divorce campaigner Una Bean McMathuna, secretary of the Irish Housewives Union, was heard to admonish her opponents, go away, your wife swapping sodomites. <laughs> <laughs> The campaign had really been marked by just these deep divisions and dramatic predictions about what this would mean. For example, one of the billboards that was put up by the No Camp read, Hello, divorce, bye-bye, daddy. You know, this was really kind of trying to pluck at people's sense of the full consequences of what might be unleashed here. But meanwhile, the yes side was focused on the reality that a lot of people were already living in broken down marriages. In fact, the estimate was that there are about 80,000 people across the country who were in that situation. And and all of those people were denied the opportunity, as you say, Ollie, to even consider a life after their previous marriage, because at the moment they were stuck. But you know, all of the major political parties in the country put their support behind the Yes campaign. And still, the winning margin was 50.3% to 49.7%. It was just over 9,000 votes that separated the two sides. I know we're talking about Ireland, but this was late even for Catholic countries. I mean, Italy, for example, had legalised divorce by 1970. But it's interesting how religion was used by both sides in the referendum. Uh, obviously, for the No campaign, who had some pretty good influences on side, John Paul II and Mother Teresa, uh, you know, inevitably they would be playing up the fact that the Bible says that you should marry for life. But the Yes campaign's counter to their argument was also sort of based on religion, or at least on on Christianity or an interpretation of modern Christianity, because it was about a second chance. It was saying, give women a second chance. If this was your daughter, you'd give her a second chance, wouldn't you? And it was tapped into religious beliefs too. It wasn't just about progressive politics. It was saying, sins should be forgiven. People make mistakes. That's what Catholicism is. Mm. Let's ease the suffering on women trapped by domestic violence. So religious people were torn both ways and the church eventually had to say that it wouldn't be a sin to vote for it if you wanted to. Yeah, and on the flip side of that, religion was used on both sides, but also women's welfare was used on both sides. You know, among the less likely supporters of keeping the ban on divorce were several women's groups who feared a tsunami of men abandoning their wives and children, hence the, you know, the bye-bye daddy slogan. Which I think was really interesting because I think you would assume from a more socially conservative perspective that there'd be more concern about rogue wives, you know, dumping the family and rushing off to marry somebody else. But the idea was that women would be the ones who would suffer, you know, housewives who maybe hadn't worked, you know, raised children and that their husbands would ditch them for a younger, sportier model and they'd be left with nothing because a lot of the debate in the previous divorce referendum had been about the fact that not enough thought had been given to the division of property, you know, alimony, child support, that kind of thing. By the time that the second referendum rolled around, there had been more provisions put in place as to what the division of property might look like in a country that allowed divorce. And I think that actually assuaged a lot of people's concerns, people who weren't necessarily that concerned from a religious perspective. And I think you can see that in 
A quote, there was a woman who spoke to the New York Times. She said, I've worked hard for 20 years to keep the family farm going. I don't want my son marrying some girl from Dublin, then watching them get divorced and her walking off with half the family some heritage. sodomite from Dublin. <laughs> and although this 1995 referendum, the successful one, only legalised divorce in cases where couples had been separated for at least four years, the idea was that, you know, this separation of church and state that was going on was a victory to be built upon. There was this wonderful quote from Mags O'Brien, who was a pro-divorce campaigner, who said, we're bringing Ireland into the 20th century at the dawn of the 21st. This is Ireland beginning to move on, but in a way that much of Europe and the rest of the world already has done. And, you know, it did open the floodgates for other reforms that did soon follow. You know, you had the 2015 uh, same-sex marriage referendum where 61% of uh, people voted for it and 66% of voters approved an amendment to legalize abortion in 2018. So really things started accelerating very quickly after this moment. Yes, and of course that was part of the peace process as well where we're at at the moment in 1997. It was about harmonizing social changes with Northern Ireland because of course you had this strange thing where it was possible for people in Belfast, which was part of the United Kingdom, to get a divorce, but not in Dublin. And John Bruton, the Taoiseach at the time of the 1995 referendum, said it was vital that Ireland amend its constitution to allow divorce. It wasn't just like, oh, politically, I fall on this side. It was like, mm. we have to do this if we're going to have peace, because it didn't make sense having these two nations on the same island having completely different laws regarding this one thing. You're, you're, you're saying that they are a divided people quite clearly there, aren't you? I saw this fascinating article published by Irish News that was talking to divorce lawyers about the most ridiculous reasons that their client had filed for divorce. One person said that his wife had spent €42,000 on psychic hotlines. Uh, another one had filed for divorce because her partner smacked his lips when he ate and slurped his coffee and soup. Definitely guilty of that. And the, my favorite one was that a, a divorce lawyer said that they had a client who filed for divorce because every morning his wife would ask him how he takes his coffee for seven years. <laughs> <laughs> Just not paying attention. That's, yeah, well, uh, maybe that's it. Yeah. It's <laughs> a great reason to get divorced. <laughs> Tomorrow. Well, to be fair, it is a 250-year-old joke. <laughs> I think it survived pretty well. Yes, I know. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. <laughs> 